0: I imagine most of you heard that Billy Graham passed into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this past week. Um, We know that he worked tirelessly in his life and for a long time and in a very broad range for the conversion of souls. Maybe no man has preached to more lost souls in their lifetime than Dr. Billy Graham. And there are many people that are going to be in heaven because he decided by God's calling to dedicate his life to preaching the gospel to the lost. We don't agree with all of the associations that Dr. Billy Graham developed through the years, but we can agree. He preached the gospel of truth and he preached repentance to the people and he preached faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he held the Bible up each time and he said, the Bible says. And, and I remember my mother when she was uh, thinking she was actually a Christian and she was not and she watched on television and she saw... This man with the title doctor in front of him, Dr. Billy Graham, holding up a Bible and saying he believed it, that had a profound impact on her, and I imagine it did on on tens of millions of people, that here was a man with degrees next to his name and believed every word in the Bible. That matters. Well, we do too, right? Whether we have a degree, doctor this, or whatever, we believe every word of the Bible. He certainly was the best-known evangelist of our time, one of the most known human beings on the entire planet, Um, and we thank God for his ministry. There are a lot of lesser-known preachers and uh, evangelists throughout church history, and we'll find the names of all of those when we're enrolled above. Um, A much lesser-known preacher in American history was named Lemuel Haynes. He also worked for the Conversion of Souls in a May 2017 article in Christianity today, it tells of this black preacher and a pastor serving in New England in the state of Vermont during the latter part of the 18th century. Of this pastor, the article says this, On March 28, 1788, Haynes accepted a call to pastor the West Parish of Rutland, Vermont, where he served the all-white congregation for 30 years a relationship between pastor and congregation rare in Haynes's time and in ours, both for its length and for its racial dynamic. During his stay in Rutland, the church grew in membership from 42 congregants to about 350 as Haynes modeled pastoral devotedness and fidelity to the people in his charge. He also emerged as a defender of Calvinistic orthodoxy, opposing the encroachment of Arminianism after the 30 years of ministry, Haynes told his parish, as he was leaving, he gave them these words, The flower of my life has been devoted to your service, and while I lament a thousand imperfections which have attended my ministry, yet if I am not deceived, it has been my hearty desire to do something for the salvation of your souls. That's a good pastor, to do something for the salvation of your souls, I'm sure he was underplaying his own ministry. He was a faithful man of God, um, an example to not just blacks but whites and everyone today of what you can do with your life if you do not fear God and you follow the calling of God. I remember when Pastor George was at the Master's Seminary and he got asked by an African American uh, pastor to come and join him in inner city, and George called me on the phone, and he said, what do you think, should I do it? And I said, George, you're not a black man, you're a Christian man. You can go anywhere in the world that God calls you. You don't have to go to a black congregation because you're black. You can go to the Philippines. You can go anywhere God calls you. Over time, God did realize in Pastor George's heart a desire to go to the inner city, but he served also in Little Rock, Arkansas, in a white congregation, and he served them well. Whether you're white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever your background is, that doesn't matter when we're serving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're serving Christ first, and then we're serving the people second. And we're trying to make sure, because of all the deception that is in the world, that people are genuinely converted. Not converted in name, not Christian in name only, but converted in their soul. Listen, working for the conversion of souls is a wise pursuit. Whether you're well-known like Billy Graham or lesser-known like Pastor Haynes, only the courts of heaven can measure accurately the fruit of one's labor for the cause of Christ. Certainly, we too in our time should be dedicated to this cause, the conversion of souls. That's what this church is about. It's an important work. Your contribution in it is needed as well. You go into the marketplace, into the workplace, into the world, and you bring an uncompromised gospel with you. And without any shame at all, you say, yes, I am trying to convert you. That's what this series has been all about, if you haven't caught on by now. We are in lesson number five, message number five. And uh, hopefully we will wrap it up today, but you never know. Um, Back to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Please follow along again with me as I read our inspired text. Acts 2, 37 to 41. Now, when they, that giant crowd there that had been gathered to hear Peter's sermon, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. We've been learning the components of biblical conversion from this historic text. Component number one we already covered was the need for gospel preaching, which Peter provided. Component number two was then the conviction of sins, that the preaching was not just interesting or informed them, but they were brought to the point, sort of the end of their rope, the end of themselves, where they realized before God they have no chance. And that's where everybody needs to be brought, that apart from Jesus Christ, you have no chance with God. Component number three is genuine repentance, that you don't just acknowledge something is true, but you realize there's something wrong with your life, and you turn from that wrong lifestyle, from that independence from God, and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ and confess him as your new king, your Lord, your master. and You're ready to follow him. It's a radical change in your heart. If you haven't gone through a radical change, you're not a converted person. You have to, you have to follow Christ, and that's a radical thing. Component number four of conversion, also review, is the sign of water baptism. While water doesn't convert anyone, it doesn't add to your conversion. It is a great symbol of conversion and the washing away of all sins. Component number five of conversion is the forgiveness of sins. There in the middle of verse 38, you see that. We learned last time God hates sin, and since he hates sin, he never treats sin lightly. Everyone either gets forgiveness or they get judgment. No one escapes sin. Everyone needs forgiveness. They need a lot of forgiveness from God. There's a mountain of debt that they have before God that we have before God. We owe God because of a life of sin. And Jesus Christ can pay that with his blood and has paid that with his blood. But you have to come to faith in Christ to receive that payment. Scripture says in Psalm 32 and verse 1, how blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven. It's a great blessing to be forgiven. There's no blessing for those that are not forgiven. And forgiveness is not automatic. You must come in repentant faith. Component number six, we started and began this last time. Component number six of conversion is that you get another benefit when you're converted, and that is you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit but the gift the Holy Spirit himself is a gift to us as believers in the new covenant. Peter says there and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit verse 39 for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to believers in this age, the new covenant age. He is our treasure, he is our possession now. We don't wait to get him, we have him now. In Acts chapter 2, it clearly teaches that every single believer in Jesus, male and female, without exception, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There were not some who got the Spirit and some who didn't. All believers get the Spirit. And now, today... Every time someone is converted to Christ, he or she immediately receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether you feel something or not, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and becomes an abiding possession. He will never, ever leave you. He also communicates the very presence of Jesus Christ to you. He is the member of the Trinity, and he communicates the presence of God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to you so that Christ himself comes to live inside of your life. He is our greatest treasure. We sing songs about that. That is where we left off last time. This gift, Peter trumpeted out there, is not only for you, he told those Jewish adults there, but, notice, for your children and for all who are far off. The you, when he says this is for you, refers to the Jews. Why? Because they were all Jews there. We're still in Jerusalem. This is an entirely Jewish context. The coming of the Spirit was a national promise to the Jewish people. It was a promise that God made to the ethnic Jews, to the, to the Jewish nation. The Old Testament context is very clear about that. It can't mean something other than what it meant in the Old Testament context. God's not in the business of changing the promises of God. The New Testament adds detail that the Old Testament did not have, but it never changes the promises given in the Old Testament. It was a promise that God had made to the nation of Israel as part of the new covenant, a better covenant he would make with them, a better covenant than the old covenant that they got at Mount Sinai, mediated through Moses. One place in the Old Testament where that promise was given to the Jews is Joel chapter 2. At a time when God would restore all of the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah after the time of the Great Tribulation, according to Joel 3, there would be the coming of the Spirit. It was for the Jews, it was for the Jews' children, everyone that God himself would call to himself. Peter does not mean here that little children or infants received the Holy Spirit in water baptism. Again, some try to use this as a proof text for infant baptism or even baptismal regeneration, that the operation of baptism actually causes somebody to be born again. That is not true. Clearly, that is reading more into the words that Peter intended in this context. The immediate context makes Peter's meaning clear. Peter means that when they grow old enough to respond to the call of God, have the conviction of their sins as was going on that day, and repent, become believers in Jesus, they too are promised the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-generation promise. It's also for the children, the grandchildren, and every generation that will come to faith. The point is, this is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful promise, a wonderful covenant. It's not going to happen just once, it's an enduring promise. It is a way of telling all of those Jews that these stipulations of the new covenant are ongoing. The new covenant will not have an end as the old covenant did. The new covenant will be a perpetual covenant. The new covenant will not only be perpetual, the new covenant will be widespread. Notice he says, even to those who are far off, they also will get the Holy Spirit. In other words, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit that these Jews had witnessed with the speaking of the languages was the beginning of something new and something big. It was something that was going to spread across the world. It was something that was going to last perpetually. It it was a major event. Pentecost was a world-altering event. We talked about this before in other sermon series that we talk big about Good Friday and the death of Jesus, and so we should. And we talk big about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, and and we should. That's right. But so many Christian preachers and Christians themselves forget that the ascension of the Lord Jesus was just as an important event when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and the coming of the Spirit was meant to be a world-altering event, and indeed it was. Now, commentators do debate whether that phrase that Peter used there, far off, refers to the Gentiles who are not in this context or to the Jews that were spread all across the world in those days outside of the land of Israel in what was called the Diaspora. You may remember the, the tribes of Israel were taken off of their land in the Old Testament with disobedience and they were spread in the nations. Well, they kept spreading everywhere. It's synagogues all over the world in, the, in that day. And there's even proof of that with um, all the the digs that are going on in archaeology. But they they were far spread. They had various enclaves and communities that had developed. And where they went, they developed a lot of prosperity and God still was with them. Many of them never came back to the land. They remained in the diaspora. And many of the people here in Pentecost were from that diaspora. They spoke in all these different languages that were listed earlier in chapter 2. We noted how that was from northern Africa and from Europe and from Asia and even far over in Asia, different places, the Arabian Peninsula and all of those different areas that is far off from Israel. At this early stage of the church, it does not appear that Peter fully understood that this new covenant would spread beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. In fact, Peter was so resistant to it, not just in Acts 2, but by the time we get to Acts 10 and Acts 11, Peter's still kind of kind of a numbskull. And it takes this vision that he gets in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that opens up all of these unclean animals, and he's told Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. But God was trying to teach him a lesson, not just that now he was allowed to eat bacon, but that The Gentiles, who were considered unclean by the Jews, were now no longer unclean. They could come into the kingdom. He didn't get that until Acts 10 and 11. So it's doubtful that here in Acts 2, Peter means the promise is for the Gentiles. It's more likely, he means, that the promise is for the Jews that are scattered abroad. And again, the foreign languages set that context there. Many, many scattered Israelites, they too would receive this promise. It was not just something that would happen in Jerusalem. It's something that would spread. It was something that would cover all over the world. Now, as we get to trek through the book of Acts, we're going to see all of this, that the word of God does spread. At first, it spreads from synagogue to synagogue. It comes out from Jerusalem, and it goes into Judea and Samaria, and it's very localized, but it's spreading. And then it goes, and it continues. It gets to Antioch, and then you begin to see the mission that opens up to to the Gentiles. But at first, it's going from synagogue to synagogue. Even the apostle Paul, who was an apostle to the Gentiles, always made it his practice when he went into town if there was a synagogue to preach the gospel first to the Jews. It was their national promise, and Peter was saying that even here. All of these conversions, of course, would be guided by the sovereign hand of God. The Jews, some of them, would accept the gospel. Really, there were tens of thousands of Jewish people that embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But over time, the Jews hardened their hearts, and the sovereign hand of God moved the gospel out to the other nations, and they rejoiced in the reception of that. God's sovereign hand guides conversions. The evangelist really can't make anybody convert. It takes God to work on hearts. Please notice that even here in this fabulous text on Christian conversion, where the responsibility of, of repenting is put on the people, we have a, a short note, but an important note, of the work of God kind of behind the scenes. All of the conversions, all of the repentance, would be in response to, notice, God's call. God's call. Look at the end of verse 39. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Who are the ones that are going to respond? Who are the ones that are going to believe? The answer, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. All that the Lord our God calls are going to get converted and get the gift of the Spirit. Do you see that? Of course, the title, the Lord, is the covenant name. For God, as he is in relation to the nation of Israel, Yahweh, the name that refers to the being verb in Hebrew. He is who he is. He is the self-existent one. That's the aseity of God that no one created or caused God. He always has been and he always will be. He's the first cause of all other causes. He never was born. He never started. He just is. Remember what he said to Moses? I am who I am. That's the name. The Lord, our God. God is the more general name. Elohim. It means that the God of Israel is the true God, and that God will call people to himself. He is Lord of all the earth. That God, our Lord, will be in charge sovereignly of how all of this conversion happens as it spreads across the globe and people get saved. By the way, that is God's prerogative, is it not? To have problems with the sovereignty of God and salvation is to have problems with a God who's sovereign. God can't be sovereign without being sovereign. Either he's sovereign or he's not sovereign. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign in everything. And that includes the salvation of people. No one can stay God's hand and say, what are you doing? He doesn't answer to anybody. Some he will call and they will come. I want to make a distinction for you and your theology just to help you out a little bit here. In the general sense, all people who hear an evangelist preach are called by God to come. Jesus himself was an evangelist, and he said in Matthew 11:28, he proclaimed this, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Was that a genuine call for people to come who are weary with life and weary with the rule, the pharisaical rules that have been put on them in Israel? And the answer is yes. It was wide open. His arms were wide open to any Come. The physical ear of people would hear that call of God to salvation. Turn from your sins. That entire massive crowd that was there with Peter, they heard it as well. Turn away from your sins. A genuine invitation to any and all. Every person, come if you want. Billy Graham would do that in his crusades. There would be tens of thousands gathered before him, and he would give the invitation to everybody, come if you want. Come forward publicly he would make them do that. That's an outward call. That's a call that the physical ear hears. And any sinner can, can comprehend the message in that sense. Oh, there's that guy up front and he's telling me I'm bad and that I need to come forward and believe in Jesus Christ. And they can hear that and they can understand that at least at one level. And that call goes out to everybody eventually. Hopefully, you know, if we get the word out to all the nations, that goes to everybody. But because a natural and an unsaved man doesn't have anything in his mind or in his will that, that helps him to believe, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They don't even make any sense to them. He, he doesn't have an ability to appraise its value, it says there. And because of that, he never responds. An unsaved person never responds to the call of God. He doesn't want to. He has other ideas about what's right and wrong. He doesn't get it. He's called blind. He's called dead in Scripture. So along with that outward call of the evangelist, God calls in a more deeper and a more compelling manner, some, not all. We call that the inner call. The inner call penetrates, takes that that outward call and makes it just go in deeper to penetrate within a person and draw them to the faith and to the repentance that they would not be able to produce themselves. In fact, the reason they are able to convert is that God gave them a more compelling inward call, come to faith and repentance. This little note by Peter briefly acknowledges the divine role in conversion, the divine role in salvation. There will be many other times throughout the book of Acts as the preachers are putting the responsibility on the people. You must believe. You must repent of your sins. We get the little note behind the scenes, behind the curtain, so to say, here is what God is doing. And what God is doing is most important. The inspired writer gives us a little brief glimpse about the work of God. I'll just give you an example. In Acts 13 and verse 48, it teaches that when the Gentiles heard Paul's evangelistic sermon, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then it says this, as many as had been appointed, had been in past tense, had been appointed to eternal life, believe. Who are those that responded to the outward call? And the answer is those who had already been appointed To gain eternal life, they are the ones who believe. God obviously does the appointing to eternal life. That is what resulted in some believing the gospel and some getting converted. The ones that God appoints to eternal life are the ones who get that inward divine summons or call to the gospel. The internal call of God is explained by the British preacher Charles Spurgeon. In 1892, he preached this. The general call goes out to all the world by virtue of Christ's universal mediatorship. Since he is the mediator of all flesh, God wills that the proclamation of mercy be published universally. Although this general call is sincere, the person dead in sins and corrupted with lust is unwilling and incapable of responding to the gospel invitation. To such an individual, sovereign grace cries out through the word applied by the Spirit, come forth. And so the person receives new spiritual life. The great physical illustration of that is Jesus standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus and speaking to a dead man, dead for four days, brain dead, gone lying in a tomb, and he has to specify who he's speaking to because his divine power is so great, and he simply said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, if you or I stood in front of a tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, we would be able to give an outward call to a dead man, but it would never penetrate inside to where he is. That's what has to happen in a spiritual sense. The voice of God has to penetrate the spiritually dead people and summon them forth, or they'll never respond. In Matthew 22:14, Jesus used slightly different language to indicate this twofold calling, this twofold work of God. He said, "Many are called, but few are what? Chosen." You know it. Many are invited into the kingdom of heaven. Many are preached at. Many have the gospel proclaimed to them. Many hear with their outer ear that invitation to come to Christ, but not all of them come. In fact, it seems most don't. Only a few were chosen by God. Only a few are given the ability inwardly to respond to the call, to overcome their stubbornness and their evil and their wickedness. God holds them accountable for that wickedness. But with some who don't deserve an inward call, he gives it anyways. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ because you had more insight than the person next to you you are a believer in Jesus Christ because God had pity and mercy on you in acts chapter I'm sorry in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 it makes it very clear that there's an inward call of God because it says everybody that God predestines he also calls and everybody he calls gets justified what does that mean declared innocent and saved and it even goes on everybody that gets saved gets glorified all the way to glory preserved in their salvation that proves there is an effective inward call for everyone that is called to get saved. That can't be the outward call. We know most people turn away from that. The internal call, the ones the Lord our God calls to himself, is an irresistible divine summons upon stubborn human hearts where he overcomes their blindness. Without the inward call, the outward call would just thump off hard hearts. But with the inward call, the human soul always comes, always joyfully comes, not against their will, but their will now sees that's what they were talking about. Jesus is so amazing. They, they just come naturally, and, they, and they, they, they love Christ. Another illustration of this in the book of Acts is Lydia's dear conversion from a Jewish worshiper of God in an Old Testament sense to be a believer in Jesus as Messiah. It records in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening, that is listening to Paul preach the gospel. And it says, the Lord, listen, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the thing spoken by Paul. Do you see that? The Lord opens the heart. Then the person responds. The flower of faith comes from that bud of regeneration. God had to do the work so she could respond to the gospel. And God did, and then she did. Just as light could do nothing but come into existence when God spoke the words, let there be light. Do you think after God Almighty said, let there be light, there would still just be darkness? Light didn't have a choice in one sense. There was going to be light as soon as God said, let there be light. And when God says to a soul, let there be life, there's going to be life as well. This is what Peter meant in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2, 9, when he said to believers, God called you, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That call was really a divine summons with the authority and the power of Almighty God. Make no mistake about it, your conversion and my conversion only could happen if he gave us a divine summons. And that leads us lastly in our study of conversion to the outcome, the last component, the outcome. And that's component number seven. If you're still taking notes, that's in our outline. Component number seven of conversion, and that is this. Listen, in verses 40 and 41, leaving the world. I don't mean dying. Leaving the system of the world, leaving the unbelieving world, leaving your attachment to the unbelieving world and joining the people of God in the church. Look at verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation, notice. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were, what? Added. Added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the kingdom of God. Conversion means... If your faith is genuine, it's radical enough that you abandon your loyalty to the people and the associations you already had, and now your loyalty is to a new king and a new set of people. You are now loyal to the beliefs and the practices of Jesus Christ and his people. You're no longer loyal to the beliefs and the practices and the education and the political goals and the purposes and the aims of the unbelieving community you grew up with. You join God's people and you join the church. Converted people cleave to their new relationship. What is it? Jesus Christ. What else? The people of Christ. The people of Christ are not an option. It's part of what you get when you get Jesus. You get the people of Jesus. You are no longer to be known as an Asian. You're no longer to be known as Hispanic or white or black. You are now a member of Christ's church and that's the only identity you need. That is your family. That is who you are. That is your future. That is your race. That is your purpose. That is your mission. These Jews here made a radical departure from others. I'm sure there were many family squabbles. All the new converts on that day, all of them joined the church. Please note. And to convince them, or at least some of them, that they needed to be saved and to get them truly converted. Please notice that Peter kept on preaching at them. Did you see that? Did you see that he kept on doing it? He urged them to be saved. That's That's an imperfect tense verb. It means he didn't just say it once or twice. He kept saying it. With many other words, it says. With many other words. This is the first of the many speeches that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And this verse indicates that the writer of the book of Acts, who's Luke... Did not record the entire speech. there were many other words. Do you see that? So Acts two is a condensed version of Peter's sermon. That probably means the rest of the sermons in the book of Acts are also a condensed version. Now, in case there's some of you out there that are wondering, and you're watching your your watch and the clock, and you're wondering, why can't that preacher up there keep his sermons as short as Peter did? My friend, verse 40 says Peter's sermon was a lot longer. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes a level of being uncomfortable and then feeling even worse before someone realizes how serious this is with God. It takes time to plow into a hard heart. That's the danger of people that sit under preaching and teaching in churches where they never get to the hard things. They get this idea that they're mature Christians, and they're not. They're busy in church. They may even have a title in church, but they're not being confronted with what God says. God says a lot of uncomfortable things. Sometimes it takes longer. Please notice that. The text even lets us know what Peter's tone was like. You ever listen to movies from the Bible and you wonder if they're getting it right? I'm always listening to what do the preachers sound like in these little movies and cartoons. And they're always just too happy, in my opinion. They act like they're modern, you know, slap-happy people. Everything's cool, dude. Chill out, man. It says he solemnly testified. He solemnly testified. And kept on exhorting. He was like a bulldog. He bit down and he wouldn't let go. Solemnly means seriously and with weight. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, it says, Jesus ordered the apostles to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. When we talk about eternity and eternal consequences and life is so short, of course we have to have moments where everything gets serious. For all of the people who think that preachers need to relate and be lighthearted and tell lots of stories and use lots of humor, please don't speak too much about sin and judgment. Our visitors won't come back. They need to understand that when the Holy Spirit got a hold of an apostle's tongue, And and produced apostolic preaching. It came out serious. And it came out earnest. Too many preachers today want everyone to feel good. And do you know why, by the way? Because they want your money. Peter did not care how they felt. He wanted them saved. They were in the business of converting souls. Isn't that a serious business? Do you take your job seriously? When you go to work, is your job serious? Do the people at your job, you know, take it seriously? See all those guys in the Olympics and they're doing their one sport. They take it very seriously, don't they? Even that thing where they're pushing the thing on the ice, you know, and they're, they're cleaning it like that. And you look at that and they're so serious about it. They're like just a few more in inches. And they won the gold this year for America. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone. I mean, I would take the downhill seriously just because you're going 80 miles an hour and you don't want to die. This is the business of winning souls. Don't you think it's okay to feel some pain and sorrow to win people to the kingdom? Are you willing to put your friendships on the line? Are you willing to put your job on the line? Is your standard of living that important to you that you can't get a different job and a different smaller house if you have to because you took a stand for Christ and told them the truth? If you could hear the pain and the sorrow of souls in Hades today, would it change the way you work for souls conversion? If you could compare that to the joy people have in paradise. And I don't mean this as an emotional argument. I mean, this is just true. They're in pain and sorrow. Eternal issues, eternal outcomes, they're at stake. No wonder Paul's final appeal to Timothy was, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and by his appearing and his kingdom. All these things he heaped on this young man. Preach the word, he said. Be ready in season and out of season. There's no more serious business you have in your life. Peter was persistent with it. It said he kept on exhorting them. Preaching the gospel was never meant to be a stale presentation of facts. You don't do a good enough job if you just say point number one, point number two, point number three, point number four. Did you understand? Good, I've done my job. Look him in the eye and tell him, brother, you're going to die one day. You don't know that? You're going to die. What's going to happen to you? You're, You're trusting in Mary. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in Muhammad. They can't help you. If we believe in Jesus, they should see in our eyes and in our tone a gravity and an urgency. You cannot joke people and relate people into the kingdom of God. They'll walk with you only so far, and then they'll realize this is serious business, and then they're done with you. Too many people think that evangelism is like this. Hey, have you tried Jesus yet? Jesus never gave anyone permission to try him. Jesus is the Lord over this world. He is the king of kings. He is coming back physically with great power and glory. The fact that he's waited 2,000 years is a tremendous amount of patience for him because he can come back in any moment and he can claim this world for his own and take up his throne in Jerusalem and rule over all the kingdoms of the world. What we're doing now is we're offering the nations Jesus' terms for surrender. They don't get to try him. They get to bow their knees before him and confess him as their king or die in his way. Psalm 2 says that. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son of God, that he, the Son of God, not become angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Remember how it ends, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Everybody in this world has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They either have a personal relationship with him as their judge or with him as their savior. If you want him as savior, then his terms of surrender are your repentance of your entire life. Beloved, Peter's aim was so clear. Peter did not preach without purpose. He did not box without aim. His purpose that day is stated there in two words. Be saved. Be saved. He was trying to convert them. And Peter made no apologies for it. Be saved from this perverse generation, he said. Get out of this generation. Get out of this world. Get on to God's ark of safety. The Lord Jesus before it's too late and the flood of fire descends on you, for it won't be water this time. As the heartfelt cry of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, he said. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? True men of God stand and preach the full, hard truth of God, pleading for the people to respond so they don't perish along with a perverted world. That's our task also. God knows you and I live in a perverse generation just like Peter did. In Mark eight thirty-eight, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice, not the loving angels, the holy angels. Their generation was bad. Their generation crucified the Lord of glory. Our generation is bad also. Our generation mocks the Lord of glory. This generation on social media lectures the rest of society on everything from guns to gays, from capitalism to animal rights. And they're so pompous and arrogant in the way they judge other people. They shut their ears and act like their morality is so great. While they break the commandments of God every single day. While they decry sin in others, their sin is mounting to the heavens. And it sickens God. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 puts it this way. How will you escape the wrath of God if you neglect so great a salvation in Christ? Many in our generation decry shootings in schools and want to blame everyone for it. But they give hearty approval, even with blessings, to slaughter the countless babies in the womb. Many in our generation scream for tolerance, and they scream so loudly nobody else can get a word in edgewise. Hypocrites. Many in our generation celebrate homosexuality as some kind of a a great thing. They're heroes, evidently, and they mock righteous marriages. Many in our generation fill the airwaves with filth, just utter filth. And they mock those who want to pray in a school. Many celebrate nakedness and lewdness. They're vain and they mock modesty. Our land is so filled with lying and covetousness and exploitation. People pursuing vanity everywhere. You can't even walk into a drugstore without it saying, be vain. Sinners are celebrated as bold and daring. And the righteous who cried down sin are called haters. Yes, we do hate. We hate injustice. And we hate lewdness. And we hate arrogance and we hate the perversion of God's beautiful gift of sex and we hate gender confusion because God made two genders and we love God and love beauty and love what is righteous and quit calling us haters because you're the haters you hate truth and you hate God and you hate Christ and you hate his word and you hate everything that's righteous and straight and good and moral and wonderful quit lecturing us We too need to be saved from this perverse generation because it rubs off on all of us. We started with confession because you need to confess sin because you know it's rubbed off on you and I know it's rubbed off on me. And I know I look at something on the internet sometimes and I'm like, Tom, what are you doing? I get angry at someone in my heart or I get jealous of someone coveting some nicer car they have and I say, what are you doing? You're conforming to the world. Get out of that. Be safe from this. Please don't, young people, please don't admire these singers and these dancers who flaunt themselves in the most arrogant manner. By the way, why can't someone score a touchdown now without throwing their chest out? Can't they just hand the ball to the people that block for them and say thank you? Is there anything wrong with that? Do you listen to the perverted comedians excusing them for saying this and that and that just to get a couple of laughs? Why do you have to listen to their perversion? Shut them off. Don't give them any ratings. The hypocritical politicians on both sides of the aisle quit fighting with one another. Ain't none of them really working for the kingdom of God in that sense. They can't. You can't bring the kingdom of God in with unregenerate people. Please don't listen to the unsaved media. Their talking heads. I keep asking myself, why is it the same people that keep telling us what to do? It's always the same people. And now we have so-and-so. We saw him last month and the month before. We saw her last time. Why is it? Who gets to decide who I listen to? Like, Turn it off. I'll listen to who I want to listen to. What do they know about the character of God? Do you love their wicked movies? What does that express? A bunch of godless people sitting around and using their imagination to produce something godless. Why is the opinion of a Hollywood actor so important? Is it important to you? So-and-so believes such-and-such. The unsaved athletes, what do they know? We wouldn't let them teach our kindergartners here at church. I'm serious, we wouldn't. They wouldn't pass the entrance test. You know, we want to know what's their opinion. Ooh, so-and-so said such and such. That generation in Jerusalem that Peter preached to had cried out for the crucifixion of God in human flesh. Forty years after Peter preached this, that same city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the most violent kind of way by the Romans. Things got so bad inside the city walls, they began eating one another in cannibalism. They were starving to death. God judged that generation in a most severe way. You don't think that's going to happen here in America? I heard Sterling in the first hour quote 1 Corinthians 6, but I'd like to also quote it again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We're so excited. Hey, so-and-so said they're a Christian. Yeah, but they're living an unrighteous lifestyle. Oh, no, but they said that they're a Christian. I know, but they're living an unrighteous lifestyle. Oh, you know, no, but but they, they, they they said the good thing about Jesus. I know, but they're living an unrighteous lifestyle. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. People today are deceived. I can have Christ and have the world also. No, you can't. Neither fornicators, do you know what that is? That's sex outside of marriage. So if you practice sex outside of marriage, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. Yeah, but I'm saved. No, you're not. You haven't repented. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. What's that? Worshiping any other God in any other religion. Nor adulterers, you know what that is. Nor effeminate, includes things similar to transgenderism. Nor homosexuals. Actually, the word means that in Greek. Some have tried to say, well, it doesn't mean homosexuals. It actually does. That's why all these scholars wrote homosexuals and not some other word. Nor thieves. There's a lot of ways of thievery. Capitalism, in some forms, unchecked, run amuck, can steal, in some cases. Nor the covetous. Ooh. Covetous. Coveting's not that bad. It's one of the Ten Commandments. I us thou shalt not murder, and adultery. What was the next one there? Stealing, don't bear false. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Then his wife, then his ox. I've never coveted anyone's ox, I have to promise that. But today, there are other things that we put in there. His computer, his patio, his Ferrari. Nor revilers, nor drunkards. You know what revilers are? That's what all those mocking people are doing on TV. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you. In other words, if you're truly converted, you're no longer that way. Yes, you may stumble in it. Yes, you may get drunk once in a while. Yes, you may struggle with this sin, that sin, okay? None of us are perfect. We get that. There's forgiveness. We don't live a perfect lifestyle. But the course of your life is changed. It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life, right? Our responsibility is to be very different. I forgot to put my clock on today, by the way. I'm out of time. Philippians 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And that's what the community is all about in verse 41. They were all added to the church, to the company of believers. They, they banded together. They even counted the membership roles there, by the way. They knew there was about 3,000 of them. Notice that. Everyone was publicly baptized in the name of Jesus and then everyone joined the assembly of Jesus. It didn't have a technical name there. It was the assembly of Jesus, the gathering of Jesus, the church. There were no private believers. In a very brief period of time, they went from rebels to repenters. They went from Christ rejecters to Christ embracers. They went from under the judgment of God, to no condemnation in Christ Jesus. They went from owing a mountain of debt towards God to total forgiveness of every debt they had. They went from inside a condemned world, and they got out and into the church of Jesus Christ. They came out the other side of the waters of baptism, so to say, and they entered into the fellowship of the saints. From now on, the story in Acts will be about the growth and the spread of the assembly of Jesus, the church of Jesus. More and more will get converted. More and more will come to Christ. I say to you, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, it is your, it is God's will that you be a member of a local church, a gospel-preaching local church. Because now this is your people, this is your group, this is your family, this is your race. And together now we formed a distinct community a community to showcase Jesus Christ and proclaim his excellencies until He come. And next week, we're going to get to study what that community is like and what they're doing. And another blessed text for us. Father, thank you so much for this text on conversion. We pray you would work it in application in the hearts of your people. Bring the lost to believe. Help them repent this very day. Father, we also just thank you for the chance for parents to give testimony to the uh, faith, that they have to bring up their children uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and for the child dedication, Lord God, that we're going to have right now. And we just thank you that we get to witness this. And we thank you for the community of believers here at Hope. It's your work, Lord God. You called us to yourself, and we give you all the honor and praise. Amen.